Let me holler for a dollar. All right, what's up, everybody? Very excited for today's show, if I don't say so myself. Um, got plenty of phenomenal stories lined up. Playing a little bit of catch-up on this Monday. So uh, I will be weighing in on the right-wing Justice for J6 rally, which, of course, you know, means Justice for January 6th. There were people who were supposed to be nominal supporters of what happened on January 6th, and uh, they went back to the scene of the crime, and I'll tell you what went down with that. I'll tell you my grand takeaway from that. Uh, A lot of misdiagnosis going on. If you look around the rest of the media landscape, you will not get that here. Um, We have U.S. General admitting that the drone strike after the bombing of the airport in Afghanistan was indeed um, a massacre of civilians. So we'll talk about that. I'm sure, as you can imagine, I have very, very strong opinions on that. Um, There's a migrant crisis at the border that we're going to weigh in on. Um, Some really amazing stuff happening there. And then we also got plenty of stuff that's fun today. I got a shocking clip of young left-wing Alex Jones. That's kind of crazy. I got uh, Tucker has Jim Brewer, this horrendously unfunny comedian on his show, and he he goes full anti-vax and gives terrible COVID advice. Got some Newsmax stuff. Got Pence versus Trump. 2024 is already starting to shake up, shape up. Excuse me. Um, we got Noam Chomsky. We got Ben Shapiro. Marjorie Taylor Greene. And a bunch of substantive stuff, too, including I will be reacting to um, the news that copays and deductibles are returning for even COVID treatment. So really not good. But without further ado, let's go ahead and get started. And I'm going to do that with a little bit of a last-minute addition to the show, if I don't say so myself. I just, I I had to cover this. I saw it earlier. It, uh, 
It is triggering the libs brought to its logical conclusion, which is incoherent stupidity. So anyway, let's kick it off. Here we go. There's this Breitbart article that came out, which, I mean, it may as well be parody, because it certainly feels like parody. Um, It's from somebody by the name of John Nolte. John Nolte. And he wrote this on September 10th. Um, It just got to my eyeballs recently, Um, but I I have to talk about it. So the title is, Howard Stern proves Democrats want unvaccinated Trump voters dead. So for those of you who don't know what he's tangentially referring to here, what happened recently is Howard Stern on his show started going really full pro-vaccine. And I think the genesis of it is that, uh, you know, the news that Joe Rogan had gotten COVID and there were all these news articles that said um, Rogan was taking horse dewormer ivermectin in order to fight off his COVID. Now, the fact of the matter is it's a little more complicated than that. He wasn't taking the animal version of, uh, of ivermectin. He was taking the human version of ivermectin prescribed to him uh, by a doctor. Now, of course, as you guys know, and I've talked about on this show quite a bit, uh, there's really not good evidence that ivermectin is effective in fighting COVID. But what Joe Rogan said is, I'm, quote, throwing the kitchen sink at it. So not only did he take ivermectin, he also took monoclonal antibodies, which is the thing that likely saved Donald Trump. Um, And he took, you know, probably three or four other things as well. And thankfully, uh, Joe Rogan got better within the course of a day or two. So, you know, that's positive. But Howard Stern went out there and said, you know, don't, by telling people you're taking horse dewormer effectively, you're incentivizing others to do that. And really, we should only be talking about the vaccine because we have this thing that's effectively a cure. And then, of course, Howard Stern went off on the, I think at the time it was four conservative radio hosts who have died from COVID, and they were very vocally anti-vaccine. And um, I think all of them at that point had a deathbed transition where they were like, oh, my God, I was so wrong, I should have taken the vaccine. Well, now, by the way, that number is ticked up. I think now the number is like six or seven conservative radio hosts or conservative radio hosts and other, like, very influential at the local level conservative political figures that have died from COVID. So, you know, uh, Howard Stern in typical Howard Stern fashion was sort of, you know, berating people to get the vaccine and saying, hey, jackasses, look at the evidence, look at what's happening. Like, you have to get it. You have to get it. It's, uh, it's the only logical conclusion. So uh, this guy, John Nolte, heard the Howard Stern segment And then comes this article. So here's what he says. Do you want to know why I think Howard Stern is going full monster with his mockery of three fellow human beings who died of the coronavirus? Because leftists like Stern and CNN, LOL. He actually wrote CNN, LOL, in all caps, one word. And by the way, talk about LOL. LOL at the idea that Howard Stern is a leftist, that CNN are leftists. They just group everybody together who is slightly left of Genghis Khan. So he continues, because leftists like Howard Stern and CNN, LOL, and Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi and Anthony Fauci are deliberately looking to manipulate Trump supporters into not getting vaccinated. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. He continues, nothing else makes sense to me. 
Well, that says a lot about you, doesn't it? In a country where elections are decided on razor-thin margins, does it not benefit one side if their opponents simply drop dead? I mean, even to this point, you could see, if anything, there's a sense of projection in this. There's a sense of, well, this is how I would think if I was them. He says, if I wanted to use reverse psychology to convince people not to get a life-saving vaccination, I would do exactly what Stern and the left are doing. I would bully and taunt and mock and ridicule you for not getting vaccinated, knowing the human response would be, hey, fuck you, I'm never getting vaccinated. And why is that a perfectly human response? Because no one ever wants to feel like they are being bullied or ridiculed or mocked or pushed into doing anything. Who wants to cave to a piece of shit like Howard Stern or Jimmy Kimmel or these repulsive doctors refusing to treat the unvaccinated? Or Bette Midler? Or, 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 by the way, the idea of doctors refusing to treat the unvaccinated is a myth. We covered the story. The headlines were misleading, and you read the specifics. After a shift, a bunch of nurses and doctors gave a press conference and said, for the love of God, get vaccinated. We don't want to have to treat these people anymore. And we're also having to turn away people who don't have COVID and have other illnesses because there's not enough beds. So for the love of God, get vaccinated. But that was twisted as if they were saying, we're not going to treat any more unvaccinated patients. There was one doctor who said that. And the doctor said, the doctor isn't an emergency room physician or in an ICU or anything. It's just a general practitioner who said, I'm telling my uh, patients who come, if you don't get the vaccine, I can't treat you anymore. Because, you know, basically his argument was, I've had patients who didn't have the vaccine and they died and it hurts and I don't want to have to feel that pain again. So I'm letting everybody know, either like, like we're breaking up as doctor and patient unless you get the vaccine. Now, you can criticize that, but it's certainly overstated the way he's saying it here. He continues, who wants to feel like they're caving to a guy who's such a piece of shit, he publicly mocks people who have died. And he's not just a piece of shit mocking them, he's a piece of shit hurting the families, the dead men left behind. No one wants to cave to a piece of shit like that or a scumbag like Fauci or any of the scumbags at CNN LOL, so we don't. What's the result? They're all vaccinated and we're not. And when you look at the numbers, the only numbers that matter, which is who's dying, it's overwhelmingly the unvaccinated who are dying and they have just manipulated millions of their political enemies into the unvaccinated camp. This is astonishing. As I saw somebody say on Twitter, now what conservatism has boiled down to is like 4D chess about owning the libs. That's what we're talking about here. The other massive ironic piece of this is you guys always talk about personal responsibility and agency and the buck stops with you and pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And here you have an instance where you're looking at pulling fingers at everybody else and everything else and the other camp in order to feel like, well, we're vindicated and doing the thing that I also admit is wrong, is incorrect, is not right. Man, this is really, really, really sad. You would think that at some point he would point out the obvious, that, well, look, ultimately, even if I think it is true that what they're doing is counterproductive in the sense that people on the conservative side aren't getting the vaccine because of it, I'm going to put the onus on the people not getting the vaccine, and I'm going to tell you, for the love of God, get the vaccine. Instead, it's always like, I forgot the question. The answer is, blame the libs. Or she says, blame the leftists, of which he includes Nancy Pelosi. What? So, I mean, right off the bat, you know that this person's, you know, breakdown of politics is phenomenally unnuanced and very didactic and black and white and tribal. But this is really out there, man. I've, uh... Could you imagine writing this article and not stopping 
and like reflecting and realizing that you're embarrassing yourself. So somehow it's the lib's fault. By the way, whether or not you know you think it's a it's a productive strategy to shame people effectively, I think it's it's relatively obvious that of course Howard Stern and anybody who's ever mocked the unvaccinated for being unvaccinated, that is coming from a place of holy shit, you're making a terrible decision, and I'm so perplexed by that and astounded by that that I don't know how to react other than to say, what are you doing? Don't do that. You know, it's like, it's like if conservatives started touching hot stoves because the left was like, for the love of God, don't touch the hot stove. I might not like you personally, but I don't want you burning your hand off. I mean, that's effectively what's going on here. And I also think they have, they have a problem separating things out like that. Like, I could disagree with somebody politically on everything, but I still don't want them to, like, die a painful death and, you know, make their family miserable as a result of them being gone and just inflict pain and suffering on people. Like, and we, I have this conversation every time somebody who, um, somebody passes away who is sort of like a monster, you guys will see, I never really celebrate death. You know, like there are times where I get it when people, it's just like a war criminal. Okay, I sort of get it why he would celebrate the death. But I very rarely go down that path because I have like a principled stance against pain and suffering and death. I don't even wish it on my worst enemies because I find that deeply uh, unhumanitarian. I don't know if that's a word, but you guys get what I'm saying. I find it, that's deeply disturbing to me. That, you know, you're, I feel like that's very close to flirting with if I don't like somebody Maybe they should be denied medical care, or maybe terrible things should happen to them. That sort of makes me a piece of shit if I go down that road. So even if I, if I dislike somebody, disagree with somebody, yell at somebody, shame somebody, it is true that in some instances that's not effective and that is the wrong path. But it also is the case, I still genuinely want stuff for, for those people that's not bad, that's not negative. I don't want them to be in pain. I don't want them to die. So everybody's better off as well. When we're all vaccinated, at some point, you hit herd immunity. It is true. Like, well over 95% of the people dying right now and 95% of the people hospitalized are unvaccinated. So if we yell at people, it's, it comes from a good place, believe it or not. Now, again, they don't believe it because they don't think about their political opponents like that. They wish all the harm in the world on us. But I promise you, that's not how I feel about it. It's just not how I feel about it. I, you know, I saw, it's interesting, too, because there was a clip I watched the other day where Ben Shapiro makes a similar point, not as stupid as this, but he makes a point that's like, I'm tired of the unvaccinated being shamed by the left. And, and then he goes on in the rest of the clip to viciously shame the vaccinated. Now, he's vaccinated, too, but he shames the vaccinated for not acting as if the vaccine works. So in other words, there are plenty of vaccinated people who still wear masks everywhere and still don't want to meet with people and, you know, are overly cautious. So he's got no problem shaming the vaccinated in very vituperative and clear ways and yelling at them. But the whole point of the segment was, stop shaming the unvaccinated. (laughs) So you don't see that contradiction, Ben? And, you know, very few people have clear standards on this across the board. 
But what we're dealing with here, I mean, this is as dumb of a response as you could get. This is twisting yourself into a pretzel to take responsibility away from the people who aren't getting vaccinated. Look, I said it before. I, I absolutely feel sympathy for those who have been brainwashed into not getting vaccinated. And I have some sympathy, but not as much for the people who are sort of leading that charge in the, in the unvaxxed camp. Um, but ultimately, I want everybody to be healthy, and I want everybody to be happy, and I want everybody to survive this thing. So if it's Howard Stern or if it's myself or if it's others shaming people, I swear to you it comes from a good place. And by the way, I'd also take issue with the idea that it is shaming. Because like with Joe Biden's speech, it wasn't even close to shaming. Joe Biden's speech was honestly just straight talk on the issue of the vaccine. I'm talking about, of course, the speech where he said, we're unveiling a new policy, and the policy is businesses with 100 employees or more, you either have to get vaccinated or test weekly. I think everything he said in that speech was just straight talk. He was just being accurate with people. He was just telling the truth. He was just being honest. And, you know, there's this funny thing that happens. Everybody always wants the president to tell the truth until the president tells a politically incorrect truth, and then all of a sudden it's, oh, my fifis, you should be more understanding. Don't use that tone. I'm sensitive. <laughs> so anyway, there you have it. Look, I'll read the title for you one more time. Um, this is something else. Howard Stern proves Democrats want unvaccinated Trump voters dead. So in other words, if you beg and if you plead and if you're aggressive in trying to get people vaccinated, they say, oh, you're just using reverse psychology on me and you want me to go unvaccinated. By the way, if all these people listen in this article told people, hey, don't get vaccinated, what would their takeaway be? Oh, they're using reverse psychology to make us get vaccinated. No, their take would be they want us dead. So if, if, if the left tells you to get vaccinated, they want us dead. If they tell you not to get vaccinated, they want us dead. It's almost like you're just always twisting it in your mind to blame the left and blame the libs. That is what it is. Because ultimately, this is what modern-day conservatism in, in many ways has boiled down to. It is 4D chess about triggering the libs. That's what it, and that's not, here's the main point, guys, that is not an ideology to base your worldview around. And functionally, that's stupid. That's dumb. Now, I'm sorry if you feel under attack or shame because I'm saying something that's true, but truth is always a defense. And so ultimately, that's the point about Howard Stern. I don't know whether or not it's effective. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But truth is always a defense. And I think the stuff he was saying to unvaccinated people, like, this is silly, you should do it. It's accurate. So, of course, I'm going to defend him on that front. Um, but there you have it. There's always this thing that happens. Everybody wants to hear the truth unless it's presented in, like, a mean way. And then it's like, well, you should care more about my feelings than the truth and be more artful and, and crafty and clever in how you deliver it. Or you should write an article since you're the personal responsibility people that says, take personal responsibility and get the vaccine. All the data is clear. Okay. Next, 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 next. Here we go. So there was a rally in Washington, D.C. Thankfully, it, it's not when I was there. As you all know, it's, uh, you know, for some of the week, I'm in Washington, D.C., recording Crystal Kyle and Friends, among other things. Um, this happened on a Saturday. I wasn't there. But it was called the Justice for J6 rally. What that stands for is, and I'm sure most of you already know this, Justice for January 6th. So these are people who are somewhat sympathetic to what happened on January 6th and the people who perpetrated it and carried it out. 
Um, what ended up happening is the rally was a dud. The rally flopped. In fact, there were way more media there and police there than rally goers. Take a look. Only about 450 people showed up, and they were far outnumbered by police. The massive police presence stood guard around the perimeter of the Capitol building. Some of the officers were in riot gear. Others on bicycles, all part of the robust security presence on hand to counter any potential violence. Law enforcement's plan was to keep counter-protesters away from the main demonstration. You see this group of bike police officers? There are probably about 15 or 20 of them, and they are escorting a counter-protester, a man who is dressed all in black, with some sort of sign uh, referring to Black Lives Matter. The Justice for J6 rally continues. We need to start saying no more. Organizers wanted to draw attention to what they believe is the unfair treatment of some of the people arrested in connection with the January 6th insurrection. This is about justice and disparate treatment. Matt Brainerd is one of the rallies organized. This is about the many people who were there that day who have not been charged with violence, not been accused of assaulting a police officer, destroying property, and disparate treatment they've received. Many of the people mentioned have been charged in connection with assaulting officers. Jonathan Mellis, who is facing a 10-count indictment, among the charges assaulting, resisting, or impeding certain officers using a dangerous weapon. Ryan Zink is charged with violent entry and disorderly conduct on Capitol grounds. For weeks, police have been concerned about a repeat of the January 6th violence that led to five deaths, more than 100 officers injured, and millions of dollars in damage to the Capitol building. This time around, law enforcement was prepared. Late today, police told us that they made a total of four arrests out here, only one of those for possession of a firearm. And by the way, um, there's speculation now that the person who was arrested with a firearm was actually an undercover FBI agent. So um, way more media, way more police presence than there were even rally goers. There were less than 500 rally goers. They were peaceful the entire time. Um, So let me give you uh, some more numbers on this. Roughly 63 people that are held in federal custody awaiting trial or uh, or sentencing hearings. Uh, are left from January 6th. So there's still 63 people who are in federal custody awaiting a trial for January 6th. That's interesting. Now, at least 30 are jailed in Washington. The rest are locked up in facilities across the country. Um, Many of them have said, hey, we're being treated unfairly. One defendant said he was beaten. Judges have released the vast majority of the defendants, including more than a dozen members and associates of the Oath Keepers. For those of you who don't know, the Oath Keepers are a far-right group who are charged uh, with the most serious case brought so far in the attack. Only three people charged in the Oath Keepers conspiracy case remain locked up after judges said they appeared to play a leadership role in what happened on January 6th. So that's where we are right now. Um, You know, it's interesting because I don't know to what extent the people who are showing up here for the uh, Justice for J6 rally are, are saying, hey, you're unfairly holding these 63 people and you're abusing them, and so we want you to uphold their civil liberties, or to what extent it's, 
no, we just support what happened on January 6th, or it's like a mix of both, uh, I don't know. I don't know. But at the end of the day, the rally was a total dud. It was a complete flop. Now, it is true, and there's an important fact. There, were, there was speculation online before this event that, hey, look out, this is a sting operation. You know, it's basically set up by the feds. So if you're a right winger and you're sympathetic, don't show up. Don't show up because they're just going to knock you. They're just going to bring you down. That's what the whole point is. And you had a lot of prominent right wingers who were arguing that. So with that being the case, I mean, it's also just no surprise that it was such a dud. But what's amazing is, and I'm sure all of you noticed this, in the lead up to this event, what was going on? Well, the media was hyping it up like it was going to be the next January 6th. In fact, I think in some gross way, the media wanted it to be the next January 6th because it gives them that narrative that they love, like the evil, big, bad Trump supporters and everybody else and the lawless, their insurrectionists, their rioters. And so this is definitely what's going to happen. And the police also clearly bought into this narrative. Now, you could say they were just being overly cautious, and that's a good thing. But like even rebuilding the fence, rebuilding the fence, and by the way, they were all, a lot of them were in SWAT gear. And it was like, it was honestly like breaking out a tank and a bazooka to deal with some mosquitoes. That's what the sense was. But again, the media wanted it to happen because it would feed their narrative. It would, it would be sensationalistic. They loved that stuff. They were waiting for it. And the, the police went overboard. And I, I think, if anything, the main takeaway here is that, man, these institutions really are broken. They really are broken. They're unable to look at things objectively. And they were totally unprepared for what happened on January 6th when they should have been prepared because there was a lot of evidence that it was going to be ugly that day. Um, they were unprepared for that, and they were massively overprepared for this, even though all the signs were there was probably going to be a dud, because even the right-wingers were like, it's a sting, don't go. So it just astonishes me how we really are run by children. You know what I mean? They can't adequately evaluate evidence. Um, they can't be sober and reasonable about this stuff. And that leads us to where we are right now. So, but I will say this. Don't take this as proof or evidence that, well, obviously the Trump types are now completely defeated and they're gone. And there was the, the last gasp was what happened on January 6th. And now everybody sort of the fever broke and we came back down to reality. I wouldn't say that because, again, if you look at the polls of the Republican base, Republican primary voters, very clearly Trump is still their guy. And if anything, the reason why this wasn't big is because there were all the warnings from um, right-wing leaders that, hey, this is, this is a sting, don't go. So I do think there is still a huge issue with Trump and his supporters. He's still the favorite going into 2024. Um, but I also think the institutions and the media and the police and the intelligence agencies, they're total idiots and they can't evaluate stuff properly. So anyway, there you have it. The media clearly wanted, you know, this huge, scandalous, violent or borderline violent rally, some diet January 6th thing to happen. And instead, you got almost nobody showing up and hilarious overkill. So we'll see what happens moving forward. But clearly, this is uh, not what the media wanted, not what 
the police or the intelligence agencies expected, but it was all pretty obvious to anybody who was paying close attention. So the U.S. military has now admitted that their revenge slash retribution drone strike after the bombing of the airport in Afghanistan was really just a massacre of civilians. So let's take a look at um, a top general admitting this. And then when we come back, I'll tell you why it is they did. Uh, General, this is a complete and utter failure. Can you explain how this possibly could have happened? So uh, this particular strike, we certainly was a terrible mistake, and we, and we certainly regret that. And I've been very clear that we take full responsibility for it. At the same time, we were carrying on a number of complex operations designed to defend ourselves. Uh, we conducted a strike a couple of days before up in Nangarhar that was very successful. We conducted other uh, operations across the battle space to, to defend ourselves during this very difficult 48-hour period when so many imminent threats were manifest. So while I agree with it, this, this strike certainly did not come up to our standards, and I profoundly regret it. I would not qualify the entire operation in those terms. I would reject a parallel between this operation and, a, uh, and an over-the-horizon strike against an ISIS-K target, uh, again, because we will have an opportunity to further develop the target in time to look at pattern of life. That time was not available to us because this was imminent threat to our forces. It's important that I emphasize that. We did not have the luxury of time to develop pattern of life and to do a number of other things. We struck under, under the theory of reasonable certainty. Probably our strikes in Afghanistan going forward will be under a higher standard. That's a policy matter, not a purely military matter. But I don't think you should draw any conclusions about our ability to strike in Afghanistan against ISIS-K targets in the future based on this particular strike. Well, isn't that mighty convenient? Don't draw any conclusions based on this. This is the outlier. This isn't the norm. Except that's not true because what we know from Daniel Hale, the drone whistleblower, is even under Obama, it was a 90% civilian death rate. 90%. That's why Daniel Hale is locked up right now. Because Daniel Hale came out there and told everybody the facts. And then, of course, the establishment threw the book at him because that thoroughly and deeply embarrasses them. Oh, you're leaking classified top secret information. Yeah, but what if that's information that we should know? Because it shines light and, and gives transparency to an important issue. Our tax dollars are being used to massacre civilians routinely. Well, it doesn't matter. He technically broke the law in telling people the truth, so now he's locked up. Now, that was under, that was under Obama, 90% civilian drone death rate. 9% of the time we get the wrong people. Under Trump, he increased drone strikes 432% and also got rid of the few remaining guardrails and rules that existed. So he was like, rules of engagement, making sure we're getting the right targets, gone, get rid of it. And oh yeah, let's drastically increase the number of drone strikes. That's why we had record civilian casualties in Afghanistan in 2019, because of that. And this idea that we've all been taught, which is total propaganda, BS, our laser-guided precision munitions can kill a mosquito from 100 miles away. Total nonsense. It's not true. It's not true at all. Now, why did he do this? Why did he bring this up? Why are they admitting it? Very simply, there was a big expose that I believe it was the New York Times wrote a piece on it, 
and explained, killed 10 civilians, seven children. Now, by the way, we knew this in the day or two after the strike, because that's what all the evidence was saying on the ground. It took way longer than that for a mainstream U.S. outlet to go, okay, yeah, we looked into it, and that's true. By the way, that's a problem in and of itself right there. So it's only when the New York Times or the Washington Post or one of the big outlets admits something that the Pentagon feels pressure and the intelligence agencies feel pressure to be like, okay, our bad. That's a huge problem. Again, we reported on it immediately after because that's what all the evidence on the ground was saying. You just killed children. You just killed an aid worker. But, you know, it's easy to dismiss, oh, the fringe people, the rabble, the peasants. They're not official sources. Well, it turns out the so-called unofficial sources were correct. And by the way, they're almost always uniformly, universally more honest. So the only reason why they admitted this, guys, if the New York Times didn't write that article, which is very possible they weren't going to, if they didn't write that article, they never would have admitted it. The Pentagon, the intelligence agencies, the generals, they never would have admitted it. They would have been like, let's try to get away with this. Let's shh, be quiet. They haven't really called us out yet, or at least I, we haven't officially been called out yet by the mainstream outlets. There's a number of incredibly disturbing problems here. They would have hidden it if they could, and um, thankfully the New York Times actually did something good, which is rare, and as a result of that, they have to go, whoopsies are bad. Now, by the way, they're asked, hey, what about, are you going to like pay these people? or allow them to come to the U.S., the family members of these people. And they're like, yeah, you know, we're looking into that. We want to do that. We'll see. Yeah, I'm sure. I'll give you, I'll give you a couple guesses how that's going to unfold. I bet they're not going to, uh, you know, be granted refugee status. I bet they're not going to be paid any sort of reparations. But now the U.S. military, since they were caught red-handed, they're like, yeah, uh, totally. We're sort of looking into that. So relax. Be cool. Be cool. We'll take a look and we'll see what happens. But, I mean, when they say... Don't, don't, this isn't indicative of the rest of the war. It exactly is that. It is that. And if you believe that that's the case, well, then obviously you'll turn on the military-industrial complex and our imperial wars, and they can't have that. Now, by the way, the overwhelming majority of the American public is already against these wars, and if they knew the facts of what's really going on, and this is a good indication of what's really going on, even more people would be against it, and they'd be more strident in their opposition to it. So they're trying to cover their tracks on the way out, even though they're admitting, whoopsies. And by the way, is it really a whoopsies? I've made this point before, because um, Sam Harris used to make the argument about intentions. Oh, since we don't mean to do harm, therefore, it, it, it doesn't count in the same way that like a terrorist who is purposely killing civilians counts for them. But the fact of the matter is, let's say you wake up and you're driving to school, you're in high school or college or whatever, and um, you, kill, you kill somebody with your car on day one, driving to school. Now, you can say, that's not murder, it's manslaughter, I didn't mean to do it. Okay, fair enough. Uh, let's say the second day you kill somebody with your car, and then the third day you kill three people with your car, and then the fourth day you kill another five people with your car. At, at a certain point, is it legitimate for you to go, listen, I, it's, not, it's not murder, because I, every single time this is happening, I, I didn't mean it. My intentions are not, are, my intentions are pure. My intentions are not, to hurt anybody. At some point, people are going to call bullshit on you, aren't they? They're going to go, I don't know if you can make that claim when you're on like your 12th dead body. And that's the point about the U.S. military, that, you know, people would hesitate to use the word terrorism to, to talk about this. When you're doing violence for a political or religious reason, that is the definition of terrorism. We were doing violence for a political reason here. 
it is what it is. You might not like the fact that if we use definitions objectively, it applies to us as well, but that's exactly what we're going to do because we're adults here. And we don't play the game of, my Fifi, we always mean well. Mommy and Poppy said I, that I'm the good guys, and so I'm always the good guys no matter what I do. <laughs> that is the kind of thinking that neocons and imperialists and, and hawks, that's the trap they fall into, and American exceptionalists, that's the trap they fall into. That's their kind of thinking. And it's grotesque, and it's dumb. It's just really dumb. So anyway, he said, we didn't have time because it was an imminent threat. We didn't have the luxury of evaluating the evidence. Well, that should never be a thing anywhere ever, period, for anybody. I didn't have time, so I had to bomb. I had to murder. I had to shoot. I had to kill. No, no, no. You need to make damn sure you're getting the right people. Damn sure. But that's the thing. They just wanted the story, the cover story. Oh, yeah, we got the ISIS-K operative. Now, by the way, final point. Think of all the outlets, the mainstream U.S. outlets. When that strike first happened, every single outlet was like, U.S. responds and kills ISIS-K planner. Every single outlet said it. Guys, that alone shows you how broken mainstream media is. That they all said it right in the wake of the attack, the day of where, where people were killed. The U.S. media across the board was like, we killed an ISIS-K operative now. So we got revenge for the airport bombing. So none of them did any verification, did any fact-checking, looked at any evidence or data or proof. None of them have sources on the ground. They were just acting as stenographers to the Pentagon and the intelligence agencies and the deep state, basically saying exactly what the military-industrial complex wanted them to say. That's how you know how terrible they are. Now, every once in a while... As my dad used to say, even a blind squirrel finds an acorn every now and then. Every now and then, like the New York Times blew the whistle and said, actually, no, you killed civilians. But they, these people and these institutions are fundamentally broken. They're broken. And it's a goddamn shame when randos on Twitter and assholes in new media like myself with a loud mouth and a political commentary show, we're running laps around them. We're way ahead of them. We were telling you that it was they killed civilians way before. It's really disgusting, man. I don't want to be the more serious one in the room because I'm not. I'm an asshole. I joke around. I have fun. I give my opinion. You know, I'm obviously rough around the edges, and I'm not for those, many of those in polite society. But it, it's a shame that we're way ahead of them. Every independent left-wing new media outlet is way ahead of them. What does that say about how broken that system is? And what does it say about the fact that all the institutions try to hold us back and promote them? I mean, think about the way, you know, whether it's uh, Facebook or Twitter or, or YouTube, how the mainstream stuff is promoted relentlessly and our stuff is held back. The algorithm screws us. Meanwhile, we were right about the drone strikes and they were wrong. They did the propaganda. They lied. Are all, uh, is CNN going to get us channel pulled because they lied about that originally? Because they were stenographers to the Pentagon? Because they were spreading fake news? That's what that is. That was fake news when they said we killed a nice escape planner. Is there going to be any punishment? Of course not. Of course not. The system is broken in so many ways, man. And I feel terrible for... It was an aid worker who was killed. There was a bunch of children who were killed. I feel terrible for everybody who was negatively affected by this. Just an apology is not enough, by the way. You know, I actually think reparations should be paid and they should be brought to the U.S. as refugees. That's the very least that we could do. And, by the way, there was an article where somebody talked to them and they said exactly that. Pay us and let us come to the U.S. The least that can be done... This is as bad as it gets, but unfortunately, 
There were so many situations like this throughout the entire war. This is indicative of what the war was. This is exactly indicative of it. You know, imagine jacking natural resources, uh, the imperialist chessboard being us against China and Russia, that being a main concern, military-industrial complex profits, all that's going on, exploitation and imperialism. And the entire time they tell you, oh, no, we're just protecting freedom and democracy and human rights and we're the world police and we're killing terrorists or whatever. Does it look like that? You, you know the answer. Okay. Next. So there's a migrant crisis happening right now. Um, there's a bridge in Del Rio where Haitians have fled Haiti for a number of reasons. There was an earthquake, and there's also the uh, president... Moise was just assassinated not too long ago. So they're all fleeing, and they were coming by boat, but then the Biden administration cracked down on those boats. And so then, now they started going the other way. They go to Mexico and then up through Mexico, and now there's, at the time of this segment that you're about to see, when it was recorded, it was like 9,500 or 10,000 migrants who were there. Now it's over 15,000 migrants who are under the bridge. So let's watch, and then we'll come back and discuss it further. Emergency in Texas tonight as more than 9,500 migrants who have arrived in the past 48 hours are living under a bridge and thousands more are expected in the coming days. The migrants, many of them Haitian, are camped out in Del Rio, Texas, fleeing a country that's been torn apart by a coup and a major earthquake, of course, in recent weeks. Rosa Flores is out front in Del Rio and she has just returned from an exclusive aerial tour of the area. Rosa, look, you're talking about nearly 10,000 migrants, thousands more still expected in a matter of uh, 48 hours here. Border officials are calling this situation unprecedented. What did you see? You know, Erin, the visuals are shocking because what I was able to see were three different paths of migrants and the free flow of migrants into the United States in a very small area, which is just behind me, actually. What you see are the migrants coming in. They take a dirt path by the hundreds, by the way, is what we're seeing, only to make their way to a bridge that already has more than 9,500 people already waiting. And if you look closely at these images, you'll see that there are some resources there. You see porta potties for them. These are women, children, infants, men. And here's the other concern. So according to officials, there's a camp that is being started, that is being set up, a makeshift camp. And we're, we were able to see that from the air, you can see that people are using blankets, plastic uh, branches to try to create shelter for themselves. It's very, very hot here, and you'll see that they're starting to live in this camp. You can see on the fence that people are starting to dry their, their clothes on the fence that's by this camp. Now, according to the mayor, there's more than 9,500 people on the bridge right now. President Biden has not called the mayor, according to the mayor. He has not received a call from Secretary Mayorkas, but they are calling out to the federal government to send more resources. Now, DHS says that they are sending more resources, that they're providing food and water for the people that are under the bridge. But, Aaron, this is what the waiting room, 
that immigration is looking like right now in the gates of America. Thousands of people waiting to be processed. This is not a processing facility. This is a waiting area. And so that's exactly what we're seeing. And now what we're going to be seeing in the next few days is this makeshift camp. And according to the mayor, processing these 9,500 people, Aaron, could take up to two weeks. That's the backup that they're dealing with here. That's why they're asking for more resources. I'll go out on a limb here and say it's going to be more than two weeks for sure. That's a that's a kind estimate. Um, so, all right, let's dive into this. First point I want to make, this actually isn't for me. I was talking about this with Crystal, and um, she pointed out everybody's a hypocrite on this. Now, here's why. Democrats would scream bloody murder if this was happening under Trump. And we know that because of all the border facilities that they were calling concentration camps and the kids in cages. And, yeah, it is true that Obama and Biden helped build those cages, but they didn't really say anything when it was under them. Um, so I do think it's fair to say Democrats would absolutely be losing their mind and they would be down there giving this incredible scrutiny and blaming every, every bit of it on Trump. Um, now you can determine whether or not you think that's fair, whether it was fair under Trump and whether it would be fair under Biden, but we all know the reaction would be massively different in democratic circles if it was Trump as president. Um, but Republicans would welcome these people with open arms if it was Cuba if it was a different island nation. And we all know that because this is, this is one where over time, Republicans have been remarkably consistent. The idea is, hey, if people are fleeing Cuba, they hate communism, therefore they hate left-wing ideas, therefore they embrace right-wing ideas, therefore it'd be great to have them in the country because they would vote for Republicans. In fact, there was a policy, I don't know if this is still the case, it might still be the case, but if you're from Cuba, and you escape and you get to the U.S., the second you step foot on U.S. soil, you're safe, you're good, you're here, and we're happy to have you here. That's the way Republicans feel when they think, oh, these immigrants are going to benefit us and our party. So everybody's a hypocrite because, of course, the right is going to scream bloody murder over this and say deport them all. Now, what's actually happening? What's actually happening is fascinating, and I don't, didn't see much talk about this, but Biden is citing emergency statutes uh, under Title 42, which, by the way, was passed by Trump. And effectively, he's saying, since it's a pandemic, forget the normal process and procedure you're supposed to go through. We're just going to deport everybody. So as soon as they come in, yep, pick them up, turn them around, get them out of here. That's what Joe Biden is doing. Now, here's another area. Like, if if Republicans knew about that or were being honest about that, would they then give Biden credit? Because they, that is what they prefer. That is what they support. They would support the idea of, yeah, okay, they get here, turn them right back around, send them out. Well, that's what, that's what Biden is doing. So he's copying the Trump policy. Now, again, scenario where Democrats, if Democrats knew and saw that Biden was doing that, would they say, whoa, 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 you can't do that. That's, that's, that's cruel. That's, uh, you know, going around the proper process. So there is no due process for these people. What are you doing? I'm not okay with that. That's way too aggressive. That's not in alignment with my values. But no, I, I haven't heard Republicans say anything along the lines of giving him credit, and I haven't heard Democrats um, attacking him for that. Now, apparently the courts struck down the Title 42 thing, which was passed under Trump, which Biden is using to deport them all, but it doesn't go into effect for a couple weeks. So Biden is just going to keep deporting them 
until, you know, he can't do it anymore. So, listen, fact of the matter is I could, talk, I could pick apart the hypocrisy all day, every day, the hypocrisy of the Republicans, the hypocrisy of the Democrats. But really, at the end of the day, that commentary isn't worth much other than to state the obvious. Um, the real question is, what the hell are we supposed to do about this? What are we supposed to do about this? And this is where you're going to get incredibly divergent opinions from everybody, not just right versus left, but left versus left. Um, and I'll be the first to say, I only have one answer to this, and the rest, your guess is as good as mine. The one answer I know for sure is, you absolutely, positively, 100%, without a doubt, need to devote way more resources. We don't have nearly enough um, immigration judges. We don't have nearly enough processing facilities. Now, I don't know, some on the left might call those concentration camps if you build some facilities, but them people being in a facility is way better than them being under a bridge. I think we can all agree to that, right? So the one thing I know for sure is got to send more resources. Got to send more resources. Um, got to speed up the process. You have to speed up the process. You can't have it, it take you know, so long to handle basic things, thereby leaving people under the bridge for probably weeks maybe months. So that's the only answer I have is you need to devote way more resources. You need to hire way more immigration judges. Um, you need way more people at the border to handle this. Now, outside of that, my instinct is, you know, you have the process go fast, but you'd be smart about it. And so that means people are claiming refugee status. You have to hear them out. You got to hear them out. You got to hear what the argument is. Now, Ultimately, are we going to let in 100% of the people? Uh, I certainly wouldn't let in 100% of the people. Uh, I think there are probably plenty of people who, you know, uh, it's a stretch of an argument as to whether or not they can be here or should be there. Um, but am I going to go with the right-wingers and say basically deport everybody? Actually, I should say the right-wingers and Biden who say deport everybody? No, I wouldn't go in that direction either. I think that's way too harsh. I think there are going to be plenty of people. When you have a coup and you have an earthquake, and you also have other places with natural disasters. There was one place that was hit with a hurricane twice in one season. If you have these people coming here, a lot of them probably do have legitimate uh, you know, refugee status. Or their case for staying here is perfectly reasonable. And I understand why it's difficult, though. And maybe this is where I differ with some people on the left. But, yeah, when you have – in the United States of America, we don't have universal health care. We don't have free college um, we don't have high union rates, so we have, you know, basically a war on the middle class. So uh, American citizens aren't being taken care of properly, and they don't have a fair system for them. And you don't want American citizens to feel like, well, somebody just got here two seconds ago, and they're hopping me in the line, and they're getting more benefits, and they're getting taken care of more. Now, the fact of the matter is they aren't being taken care of more at all because, you know, most of the so social safety net programs don't apply to people who just got here. So it's not true, but you don't want to – you even want to avoid – the impression of that, you know? So, again, the best, my best answer when I look at this is got to devote way more resources, got to hire more immigration judges, got to have a better process and a faster process. But outside of that, you need to be intelligent and rational and logical in evaluating the case of everybody who's coming here. And some people are going to, you know, pass muster and they're going to be allowed to stay here because they have a legitimate claim to refugee status. And some people it's going to be a stretch of an argument. And with those people, you're going to have to deport them. And so, you know, I think the general sense I get, and maybe this isn't fair, I really don't know, you guys can tell me, but the general sense I get is the answer from the left is usually like, well, let 100% of them stay here because they all have a legitimate claim to be here and 
we'll figure it out. Forget about the fact that maybe American citizens aren't even being treated fairly and we're just bringing these people in willy-nilly. We'll figure it out. It'll be fine. Let's just take care of them because it's the right thing to do. It's the empathetic thing to do. It's the altruistic thing to do. It's the humanitarian thing to do. That's the left-wing answer. The right-wing answer is like, honestly, screw them. Deport 100% of them. Um, we can't even take care of our own citizens. Even though, by the way, there's hypocrisy there, too, because Republicans say, we don't even take care of our own citizens. But then when you propose programs to take care of our own citizens, like universal health care, they're like, oh, we're against that. What? So you don't even want to take care of our own citizens. Never mind not wanting to take care of immigrants who just got here. But yeah, the right-wing answer would be like, deport 100% of them. Me, the only answer I have, again, and I know this isn't a sufficient answer, but it's as good as I can come up with, is got to devote more resources, got to have a better process, got to have a a, a faster process, and outside of that, evaluate each case on its own merits and make the most reasonable decision you can make. Maybe that will manifest as about 50% of them can stay here and 50% of them will be deported. I don't know. Maybe it'll be... 70-30 70-30 in, in the direction of being deported. Maybe it'll be 70-30 in the direction of staying. But, you know, I would say you got to go on a case-by-case basis. you got to follow the law. And you have to be both humanitarian and altruistic while also being reasonable and logical and not letting people get away with it if they shouldn't get away with it, not to let them stay if they really don't have a good case to stay. So, anyway, uh, that's my grand takeaway on this. But I think... Probably one of the more important points is, is again, the point that uh, Crystal made, which I think is correct, which is that we know if this was happening under Trump, Democrats would be screaming bloody murder, but they're largely silent right now. That's for sure. And we know that if it was Cuban refugees, Republicans would say, welcome them all in. And they're saying the opposite since it's Haitian refugees. So there you have it. I don't know how this is going to end, man. I just think people are going to be under that bridge for a long, long time because we don't have nearly enough people to deal with this. We don't have a good enough process to deal with this. And um, it's just, it's a sad state of affairs. By the way, actually, final point is, expect a lot more stuff like this in the future. Why? Climate refugees. I mean, it's one thing, we're familiar with, you know, war refugees, Afghan um, civilians are coming here, refugees from war, Taliban taking over, all that stuff, Syria, same thing. So, like, you have refugees from war, just wait until you see climate refugees. And we've talked about this before. Places getting obliterated by hurricanes, that's happening a lot more now, South America as well. Um, you have the Middle East is going to be uninhabitable by either 2050 or 2100. Those people are all going to have to go somewhere. So if there's anything that I can implore on the right to start caring about climate change, you don't want a refugee crisis times 100, do you? Because that's exactly what's going to happen. Now, you could stick your head in the sand and pretend like that's not the case, but you're wrong. It's going to happen. So maybe start caring, even if that's the reason why you start caring about climate change. For the love of God, start caring about climate change because it's going to get ugly, man. There are going to be a zillion more climate refugees, and it's also going to cost a lot of money, all the cleanup from all the natural disasters. It's going to mess up you know, crops, the, the food chain. There's going to be wars over water. There's going to be water shortages. So buckle up. It's going to get bad. Okay. Next. So I have to give credit here to David Dole, uh, my buddy of the Rational National. He did um, covered this story here, saw this on Twitter, this shocking clip of young Alex Jones. Uh, he did a comparison. Look at what Alex Jones used to be like when he first started a career in broadcast or radio or whatever, yeah, maybe a public access show or whatever it was. 
Compare what he was like then to what he's like now. House, home. No, no. Here we are at a council member's house, home, uh, down here in Austin. And I'm not going to tell you their address or who they are, but you ought to see how overgrown their house is. I mean, this is just ridiculous. Very nice little neighborhood over there, I will tell you. Uh, but just crazy. Crazy. I think it makes me the maddest is how the paper countered with that story. We came out and did a story about Mr. Ellingson being harassed by the Health Department and Environmental Services. And two days later, there was a front page thing on the Health Department saying how wonderful they are, stopping crime, sewage, uh, and helping the children in East Austin. Why, everything, Health Department did it. Again, we're not going to tell you the address down here of this council member. We're not going to tell you who she is. But just for yourself, take a look at the hypocrisy. Much worse than Mr. Ellingson. And they're both in total disrepair and overgrown. So that's the hypocrisy of America now here, folks. And uh, I think the council member needs to answer up why they're allowing the health department to go around terrorizing citizens in the name of environmentalism. So $2,000 a day for noncompliance. Yes, it is ridiculous that the health department is out terrorizing people. I will beat my neighbors. I'm not letting my kids die. I'm just going to be honest. My superpowers being honest. I've extrapolated this out, and I won't have to for a few years since i got food and stuff, but I'm literally looking at my neighbors now and going, you know what, I'm ready. My daughters aren't starving to death. I'll eat my neighbors. See, my superpower is being honest. I'll eat your ass. I will. I'm combat model, optimum self-sufficiency, probably the leader. The point is, is have you thought about that yet? Because I'm somebody that thought I could fix this, and I'm starting to think about having to eat my neighbors. You think I like sizing up my neighbor? That's incredible. That's incredible. Allow me to join in with the chorus of people saying the following. What the hell happened to this guy, man? What happened, Alex? Guys, there was a time, I mean, you could argue that the point he's making in that old clip is sort of a left-wing point. He's just pointing out the hypocrisy of some, you know, health official. Hey, look at how they're living, and they're finding somebody else for a, a much less bad situation. I mean, that's, you could argue he's actually doing good work there. Like, what he's doing is positive. Um, fresh face, a lot of people are pointing out, sort of good-looking. He was a bodybuilder at one time, too. I think it was, this was probably just after he was a bodybuilder. God, Alex, the years have been rough to you, dog. What happened? That was 1995 that that video came out. Look at how he looks now. Look at what he says now. Oh, man. It almost, hey, listen, it almost makes me feel bad because I don't know. You guys tell me. I don't know if this is unfair or not, but he might have, like, serious, um, you know, psychological issues that he's dealing with that have sort of aged him a lot and, you know, made him get more and more extreme. But that's something else. Uh, there was a time, a lot of people in my audience might not remember this. The old school secular talk listeners will remember this, but there was a time when it was, um, everybody thought Alex Jones was on the left because during the Bush administration, he hammered them. He was ruthless. He was vicious. He, you know, thought they were the faces of the Illuminati and the New World Order and the neocons were evil, and he was positioning himself as massively anti-war. He railed against the Iraq war. 
um, you know, he was one of the big proponents, of course, of the 9-11 conspiracy theories, which said that um, Bush and Cheney and, and the administration did 9-11. And so most of his show back during the Bush era was beating up on the Bush administration and beating up on neocons and positioning himself as anti-war. So there was a time when everybody thought, oh, Alex Jones, he's like that left-wing conspiracy theorist. And you're seeing, by the way, again, 1995, that's the era even before the Bush era, of course, you know, early 2000s was the Bush era. Um, but man, it's crazy to see, isn't it? But obviously over time, when Trump came along, he sort of hitched his wagon to Trump and went full, you know, MAGA fake populism. And under Obama, of course, he, it's not like, he, it felt like he had somewhat reasonable criticisms of George W. Bush. Under Obama, he went full, like, you know, you're a demon. I remember him covering a segment where there was a fly that landed on Hillary Clinton or Barack Obama, and he thought that was evidence that, like, they're demonically possessed. We've covered more Alex Jones uh, segments than probably anybody in new media. I mean, you type in Secular Talk Alex Jones and just have a field day. Go watch the hundred segments we, where we covered things that Alex Jones said. Um, but, yeah, time has not been kind to this man, that's for sure. Not only not been kind to his looks, but has not been kind to his ideology. Because he went from somewhat lefty and clearly his feet were on the ground to floating up there in space somewhere, touching Neptune and making incoherent arguments and saying creepy things like this. Okay, we do one more and then we'll take a break. So Jim Brewer, the comedian, uh, he was on SNL at one point. I actually know him more through the movie Half-Baked. It's a Dave Chappelle classic. Check that movie out if you haven't. It makes me smile every time it's on. I watch it so much. Um, he recently took a stand uh, by saying, I'm not going to perform at any venues where the comedy club basically mandates that you show your vaccination proof when you walk in. He's against these vaccine mandates for these businesses. Um, so he took a stand. He uh, did a video saying he's not going to perform in any of these uh, venues, and he came, became a bit of a, a far-right hero after this video. Um, and then he went on Tucker, and this was a shaky interview, to say the least. Let's take a look at what he said. But the principle remains, if you can force people to get the vaccine, what can't you do? That's a question that Jim Brewer appears to be thinking about. He's a comedian. He just announced he's not performing at any venue that requires patrons to be vaccinated. He joins us tonight to explain why. Jim Brewer, thanks so much for coming on. Interesting that you did this. It caught our attention. Why? Tell us. Uh, I'll be quiet as you explain why you did this. Well, honestly, I got a lot of feedback from a couple of venues that I was playing. And my fans were really upset. They said, you know, I'm not comfortable with getting a COVID shot, and, and now they're saying I can't come see you perform unless I do that. And I looked into it, and that's the last thing you should be doing is going, hey, you want to come, you want to come see the, you're like feeding the seal the fish. Hey, you want to you wanna come see a concert? Ooh, ooh, ooh. You want to, you want to, here, cast the fit. Why would you exactly. do that? Why would you, I don't want any of my fans forced to come laugh, and they got to get a shot in them. And and honestly, Tucker, I got to be honest with you. What really what really started uh, my video was there's a new narrative, and the new narrative is. 
the unvaccinated or the beast. Kill the beast. This, this, this program goes on forever. Kill the beast. The beast is the unvaccinated. Kill them. And when, when our leader put that out there and pointed the finger, like, we're the demons, I'm not vaccinated. I had COVID. You're not going to tell me about my body. I know, I, I know my body. I know my morals. I know my faith. You don't come telling me and threaten me and everyone else as if we're the demons. I have two close friends right now, fully vaccinated, and they got COVID. Yeah. And they're both sick. So what is, this is not about safety, because if it was, you'd, just like you said, and I said in my video, eat more fruit, take care of your body. Uh, go to the gym. I've been saying that forever. You would have thought I'd call people savages for doing that. I'm always amazed at people who are celebrities or are known in, in one way or another who start going hard on this anti-vaccine stuff because they have to know deep down, you don't know what you're talking about. You know what you're talking about. You have no idea. The idea that just eat fruit. Eat fruit and take care of your body and go to the gym. Yes, does it make it more likely that if you're in shape, you um, have a, a better chance of beating COVID if you get it? Sure. If you're younger, you have a better chance of beating COVID if you get it versus if you're older. But also, in some instances, that's not even true because there's been some research talking about um, different blood types and how different uh, blood types, some react much better to COVID than others. It's just a poor roll of the genetic dice where it's like, oh, shit, I have the kind of blood type where COVID, um, you know, impacts me more than others. There's speculation that not only is there age differences, there's also uh, racial differences. There might be some racial differences. There might be other biological factors that we don't know of that can lead to a worse COVID case. So for him to just be like, I mean, it's so glib. Eat fruit. Just eat some fruit. Take care of your body. Go to the gym. That's To act like that's the end-all, be-all, to act like that's even more important than getting vaccinated, I mean, that's just honestly pathetic. And he has to know that that's unscientific. And if he doesn't know that that's unscientific, then of course I'm going to question his intelligence. He brings up, you want to talk about anecdotal. Well, I have two friends who were fully vaccinated, and they got COVID, and they're both sick. Really? Well, did you know that over 95% of the people who are hospitalized and are dying from COVID are unvaccinated? I see your shitty anecdote, and I raise you the objective data, the empirical data on the entire macro situation. You can give me your micro situations all day long. I don't care. Also, there's a, a selection bias there because he, this is the kind of guy who's more likely to focus on only the parts that he wants to hear. And so when he hears, oh, you were vaccinated and you got COVID, that'll stick with him. But when I tell him that, hey... I was exposed to COVID, but I was vaccinated. I should have gotten it, but I didn't because I was vaccinated. Well, that'll water off a duck's ass. You won't even pay attention to that. Told you this on Crystal Kylan, friends. Crystal did a show with Sagar when he was mildly symptomatic, sitting four feet away from him for hours. She didn't get COVID. And Delta is way more transmissible than the original COVID variant. She should have gotten COVID. She didn't. Why? Probably because she's vaccinated. I'm with Crystal all the time. She should have given it to me because she should have gotten it from Sagar. I should have gotten it. Didn't get it. Why? Probably because I'm vaccinated. Now, listen, nothing hinges on those anecdotes. Why? Because they're anecdotes. I don't care about anecdotes. You shouldn't care about anecdotes. What you should care about is the data. A data is when you take all of the anecdotes and you put them together to look at a macro picture. What is the macro picture? I just told you, over 95% of the people who are hospitalized or dying from COVID are unvaccinated. 
That is staggering. So take your, you should eat some fruit nonsense and shove it right up your ass. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Eat some fruit. Work out. Take care of your body. It's unbelievable the, the misinformation and the silliness that's out there now from the unvaccinated camp. Now, by the way, I actually, I would respect it more if people were honest. So if he said, if he was like, listen, I'm against the mandates because I'm against the mandates. I think it, it, it does take away too much freedom and liberty from people. Um, so I'm against the mandates. But all the evidence shows the vaccine is, is good and helps. That would be one thing. I probably wouldn't be doing this segment if he said that. But he can't help himself. Instead of just saying, ah, the mandates, I'm so, so on, but the vaccine helps. What does he, what does he do? Uh, I'm against the mandates. And also, maybe the vaccine doesn't work that well. Okay, well, now you got me fucking pissed off. And you got me pissed off because you're saying shit that's wrong. You're saying shit that's dead wrong. It's factually wrong. It's provably wrong. It's demonstrably wrong. And if you looked at the evidence in a serious way, you would know that. So um, the other point to bring up, which is really important, is so he's mad at the businesses. They're saying people who attend need to be vaccinated. The business made that choice. What choice did Joe Biden make? Joe Biden said for businesses that have 100 or more employees, you either need to get vaccinated or get tested. So he's not even saying you have to get vaccinated. He gave people the out of testing. But that's for employees of businesses with 100 people or more. A lot of these comedy clubs are smaller than that. Even if they weren't, this is people who are coming to the comedy club. They're not the employees. They're the patrons of the, of the business. And any comedy club that says, we want you to have a vaccine, the small business is making that decision on their own. Now, usually, people who lean right, what do they say? you got to leave it up to the businesses to make their own decisions. Just get the government out, let the businesses make their own decisions. Well, here you go. Here are the businesses making their own decisions. And all of a sudden, what? You flip on the principle, and now you want a federal, a federal mandate against letting small businesses make their own COVID policies for themselves? It's totally incoherent. They're flipping on that, that right-wing principle of, like, let the small businesses decide for themselves. They are deciding for themselves. And, by the way, the real reason why they're doing it I mean, they might care a little bit about people's health and safety, but I doubt it. It's more about they don't want any lawsuits. If you are a comedy club and people come in and 100% of people in the room get COVID, they can get a lawsuit. Hey, you didn't have adequate uh, safety measures in place. They don't want that. They don't want to deal with that. So the businesses are just protecting their ass. Um, but, of course, he doesn't, you know, the way he's thinking about it, right over his head. He doesn't, hasn't thought about it in any sort of nuanced way. Then he brings up, and this is just lies, the new narrative is that the unvaxxed are the beast. Kill the beast. Who, who is vaccinated, who wants more people to get vaccinated, has said, you are the beast, and we should kill the beast. If anything, it's quite the opposite. We don't want you to die, which is why we want you to get vaccinated. I mean, again, you, don't, you could simply make the case for the liberty and freedom reason, I don't think there should be any vaccine mandates anywhere at all. You want to make that case? Make that case. But don't straw man people who are saying you should probably get vaccinated because it's going to save your life. Because that's what they're saying. They're saying, get vaccinated. It will help you. It will save your life. Why can't you be honest about that? Why can't you just say, look, I know you're trying to help me, but I don't agree with you. Or I know you're trying to help me, but still, it shouldn't be a mandate from the federal government or the businesses themselves. He can't. It's, it's always, it's so hyperbolic. It's so over the top. It's so, like, it's all emotional. You know what I mean? Like, Jim Brewer is just emotional about this. None of it is actually sober and reasoned. Um, then he says, uh, you're not going to tell me about my body. What does that mean, though? You're not going to tell me about my body. Yeah, dude. 
you don't have to get the vaccine, uh, you know, he's a, he is his own business person. He's a comedian. So he's a sole proprietor uh, under the tax system. You don't have to get the vaccine if you don't want to get the vaccine. You know, you could, even if you're in a business with 100 or more employees and you're an employee, you could get the test if you want to get the test. I think most businesses, with a little bit of variation, but most of them will probably say, either show your vaccine card or show a negative test. So you're acting like, you know, this is, this is the worst thing in the world. It's just basic public safety measures, dude. It's just basic public safety measures. And, you know, they just, he's against even that. He's against even that. He also brings up my morals and my faith. Oh, your faith. Oh, does your faith, uh, you know, does your faith sort of lead to your beliefs on this? Does your faith inform your beliefs on this? Maybe it does. Maybe you're fully embracing the irrational as you pretend like you're, I'm fully rational, Mr. Oh, vaccine is bad and I'm against the vaccine mandate. And, of course, Tucker sits there and nods along. By the way, Fox News has way more strict vaccine rules than the Biden administration. 90% of the people at Fox are vaccinated. And for the ones who aren't, they do daily testing, daily testing. There's no doubt Tucker's vaccinated. So he sits there and nods along. Mm, yeah, mm, absolutely. When this idiot's out there saying, you know, the mandates from the small businesses are wrong and also maybe the vaccine doesn't work. He said, oh, yeah, yeah. He's just feeding his audience whatever they want to hear, not telling them the truth. You're a hack. You're a hack. You know, sometimes I come out here and I have an opinion that you guys don't like, but I tell you it anyway, because I'm always going to tell you what I think. That's, that's my commitment to you. Even if you don't want to hear it on certain things, hey, sorry, this is what I believe. You're going to hear what I believe. I have no doubt Tucker knows that that vaccine is effective. And I have no doubt that he's vaccinated, yet he's out there doing this dumb segment. Jim Brewer, what a mess. Tim Dillon went on Twitter after this and was sort of going after Jim Brewer in the sense that he was saying, this, don't pretend like this is some moral stand. This isn't some moral stand. What are you going to do? You're going to write off? Over 50% of the comedy clubs around the country, because I guess probably over 50% of them have it. You're being silly. He's being silly. He thinks like this is, he's some hero. Again, the, the businesses are deciding on their own. You don't like it? All right, we'll talk to the small business and try to talk them out of it. It's probably not going to work because they're just trying to protect themselves from lawsuits. But my guess is, Jim, they're really giving you an option, uh, the people who are coming an option, vaccinate or negative test. So, but then, of course, he probably has a problem with that, too, because he just doesn't care about any sort of basic safety measures, and he looks like he's lost his mind. Okay. All right. Let me take a break. When we come back, I got Newsmax, and I got Pence versus Trump. You do not want to miss this. Stay right there.
Alright y'all, we are back, we are back, we are back, and we are back. Time to talk about um, a Newsmax host flips out. This is great. So there's a Newsmax host um, who was discussing Afghanistan with a get to the veteran who uh, was on the ground at some point, was talking about the evacuation efforts. This, I think this clip's about a week old, so I'm a little bit late to cover it, but I just had to cover it once I saw it. Um, the host is going to flip out over very, very mild Trump criticism. I'll say this, though. If you're stuck in Afghanistan, you want to leave, but the Taliban is not allowing you to leave, I don't know how you don't call that a hostage situation. I mean, I know I, I think you might not have done that to your I mean, head, but that's only it, a matter it, of time. It, it, it's a stretch, to be really, really honest with you. Like, it's a frustrating, hard situation. Like, and, and there are people that need to be solving this in Washington. Uh, but, but I think a hostage situation is, um, you know, is really different, to be honest with you. Like, right now, this is a huge coordination and information and communication problem. And, and it's a negotiation so, problem. We need to hold, our government needs to hold the Taliban accountable uh, to the promise for allowing freedom of movement. I think if you and I can both agree this never needed to happen. If the government knew what it was doing, uh, we wouldn't have Americans in this situation. Yeah, I think I agree with that. Yeah, I think multiple administrations leading up to this had multiple opportunities to try to um, set this up for success, and I think that's um, you know that's not happened. Uh, and and right now. Um, we as a country uh, need to come together to try to support a better. I, I can tell you, Joe. People are allies. I could, I can tell you this this didn't happen under President Trump, and I know there's a lot of people on the left that want to try to blame President Trump. He wanted out of Afghanistan real bad. He was real frustrated not being able to get out, but he didn't pull out because he knew this would happen. In fact, we all did. I called it on this program. My 12-year-old son knew about it, and so uh, I've got Americans there that are stuck. To me, that's a hostage situation. But, Joe, I appreciate yes. you working to get them out. I really do, yes. and I wish you all luck in the world to get them. Thank uh, you, Joe. With due respect, Rand, I mean, like, veterans, you know, being one, right, and our friends are over there. Um, right. We follow this closely from multiple administrations, and we know the Trump's administration's efforts here were fairly weak, that yeah. they were trying to limit the number of people that would get out. And Joe, so there was coordination problems. Joe, I'm going to cut you. I, I'm, already, I'm already weak. I'm already low on time, Joe. Joe, if you're cut him off, please. Cut him off now. Cut him off now. You're not going to blame this on President Trump on my show. That's not happening. Now, I appreciate the work that you're doing. God bless you for being a veteran. God bless you for trying to get Americans out. But don't come on this program and take the talking points to the left and blame President Trump. That's not helping anybody. The Biden administration screwed this up from the very start. You know it. I know it. The country knows it. It looks like he was trying to do a Bill O'Reilly impression from 2010. That's what it looks like to me. Classic Bill O'Reilly, like, going to yell at my guest, going to be very animated. It, he even had, like, a similar rhythm and, ca- and cadence as to how he was talking uh, to deliver it. So there's a, a bunch of stuff to say here. Um, the real disagreement was over the idea that you can call it a hostage situation. So there were over 100,000 people who were evacuated from Afghanistan when we, you know, started to pull out. Um, it, it probably was. The administration has called it the biggest airlift in history. It very well may be that, over 100,000 in like two weeks or something. I mean, that's crazy. That's a lot of people. 
There were fewer than 200 Americans who were left behind, and apparently many of them are dual citizens, and they sort of chose to stay there. Um, now, I'm sure there are some who are there who don't want to be there. But what's interesting is, and we covered this on the show, uh, there were reports that the Taliban was completely cooperating with the U.S. in trying to help get Americans out. And, in fact, there was uh, some sort of secret passageway that the Taliban would lead Americans to safety through so they could get on the planes to get out of Afghanistan. Um, now, there's a reason why they're, they're not doing it, oh, just they're good people or whatever. No, they now have control of Afghanistan, so they're the government. So they want to build some international credibility and legitimacy. So they can't just start willy-nilly massacring all the Americans, and they know that that would pull America back in. They don't want America in. They want America out, so they're willing to cooperate as long as America stays out. And so that's why we've had over 100,000 people who are out. That's why they were helping to get Americans out. Now, some are left behind, and they're, you know, we're, they're currently trying to get those people out. But he's arguing literally over semantics. He's calling it a hostage situation. The other guy's like, that's not really fair to call it a hostage situation. Now, why? Why is the guy saying it's not fair? A hostage, hostage situation is when you have guns, they're pointed at the people, and you say, you're not going anywhere or else I'll kill you. And, you know, that's typically what we understand as a hostage situation. These people are not being held back like that. They're not. Um, you know, probably the logistics are difficult to get them out. It's hard to find a way to get them out without tipping off people who might have connections to ISIS, who might actually do harm to them. And, yes, I'm sure the Taliban, after all the initial evacuations, I don't know. You guys tell me. I didn't read anything on this. Maybe the Taliban basically closed the borders after you had the 100,000 evacuations that they aided. Um, I don't know, but to call it a hostage situation is definitely a stretch, definitely a stretch, especially because they were just cooperating with us two and a half seconds ago. So, um, but he wants to use the hyperbolic language. He wants to say, oh, it's all been a failure because that allows him to attack Biden, and that's his whole purpose in being on Newsmax is I'm just going to attack the Democrats and attack Biden um, 24-7. The other part that was super annoying is he says, well, Trump wanted to get out of Afghanistan real bad, but he didn't get out because he knew this would happen. That is not true at all. That's not true at all. So originally, I thought Trump just cucked himself to the generals. Um, now it looks like they actively tried to undermine him. But at the end of the day, he's the commander-in-chief. He didn't get them out of Afghanistan. And uh, it's not like he said, well, hold on, maybe we shouldn't do this because then bad things will happen. That's definitely not what happened. He was just basically arm-twisted into staying in there by the generals, which makes him, again, as I said originally, sort of like a cut to the generals. Um, but it's, he's finding a way to give Trump credit. He's finding a way to give Trump credit. Now, the other guy who's been working on the ground the entire time said, listen, when Trump was in there as well, we had issues. Um, you know, it was difficult to get things accomplished the way we needed to get them accomplished. Again, this is a guy who's on the ground working there, figuring things out. And he says, in my direct dealings with the administration, they weren't great to deal with. Okay, I tend to take his word on that front. Too much for this guy. Mild, tepid criticism of Donald Trump, and he absolutely flips out. He absolutely flips out. I mean, that's Newsmax, you know? What else is there to say? That's Newsmax. That's One American News Network. That's some of the hosts on Fox, like Sean Hannity. I mean, it's pathetic. It's pathetic. This is how they think about politics, guys. Good guy, bad guy. Good team, bad team. And um, that's the whole worldview I'm going to have. That's the whole worldview I'm going to espouse. At the end of the day, it's just stale to me. It's just stale. It's boring. It's sloppy. It's unnuanced. You know, I, I really have disdain for tribalists. Um, whether they be Democratic or Republican tribalists. They really just get under my skin and annoy me. You know what they're going to say before they even say it. I don't know how 
they feel like they're being fruitful or productive or doing something that's meaningful or purposeful, you're just hacks. You're just partisan hacks. And um, if, if that tiny criticism makes him lose his damn mind, imagine me having a conversation with him about Trump. Imagine how that would go. Okay. So we're just getting word that Mike Pence is looking to run in 2024 for realties. He wants to be president, which means he has to get through the Republican primary, which means he'd have to get through Big Daddy Trump. CNN talked a little bit about this. Take a look. Brand new CNN reporting now on Mike Pence and yet another slice of the Trump effect on the Republican Party. CNN's Michael Warren has some brand new details of a clear effort by Pence to kick his political activities into higher gear, building out a staff, bringing in fundraisers, planning trips to the early 2024 primary state. Now, none of that is unusual. What is, is the angry Trump cloud that hovers over any Pence political ambition. Our panel is back with us, and we're joined by CNN's Michael Warren, whose story on Mr. Pence just broke on our CNN politics page. It's great reporting. So, you're the vice president, you're out of power, there's an election cycle coming, of course. You're hiring staff, you're expanding your operation, your brain's going to raise some money, you're going to go to the early states, except, except Donald Trump has made quite clear, Mike Pence is no longer his friend. Let me read loud, but let's just get right to it. This is in the new book, Peril, by Bob Woodward and Bob Costa. Uh, they're talking about the you know, Pence's refusing, telling the president, I cannot block the election results, I cannot block certifying the Electoral College. No, 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 you don't understand, Mike, you can do this. I don't want to be your friend anymore if you don't do this. How does a not friend of Donald Trump run for president in Donald Trump's party? Well, it's a difficult question that's looming over not just Mike Pence, but all Republicans who want to run in 2024. But, of course, we know that Pence and Trump have this unique relationship. I'm actually told, John, that they don't actually have much of a relationship at all right now. That quote kind of presaged where things are right now. Pence and Trump have not spoken to each other, uh, I'm told, by two Republicans uh, in five months since April when Pence had heart surgery. Donald Trump did call his former vice president and say, uh, I wish you well. Uh, but what I'm also told is this expansion of his political team, opening up a new office space just last month here in Washington, D.C. for his nonprofit group, uh, all of this crisscrossing across the country, making uh, plans to visit Iowa, New Hampshire, uh, and South Carolina, all a part of this effort where Mike Pence is not trying to patch things up with the former president. He's going to be making his decision independent uh, of all that. I spoke with somebody close to Mike Pence earlier this week, and, and this is what this person told me. Mike is going to look at this and say, where am I being called to serve? That's not going to be thwarted by any man or woman. Uh, this person continued to say, if he, Mike Pence, feels called to do this, it's not going to be because of who else is in the race. So a lot of Republicans are waiting back, waiting to see what happens with Donald Trump for that question. Some are even saying, if Trump runs, I won't run. Mike Pence is taking a different tack. Help me, help me. What's the lane? Uh, there is none. There is no lane. And that's why this will very likely crash and burn. Now, here's the thing. I, my reading on Mike Pence is, now he was the most loyal Trump sycophant that there was. And he did it for political reasons, because he knew that this is a big dog in the party. He's got, he's got the love of the base and all that stuff. But ultimately, Mike Pence is a, is a true ideologue. And so what I mean by that is, this is a guy who loved Rush Limbaugh more than anything. He was a right-wing radio host before he became a politician and before he became vice president. 
he is a true Kool-Aid drinking far-right ideologue. He believes in movement conservatism. He's super fundamentalist, religious, Christian. He uh, is conservative on all the social issues. He's conservative on all the economic issues. This is a guy who loves deregulation, loves tax cuts for the rich, um, you know, is, would be a defender of not only Reagan, but also George W. Bush and Dick Cheney. And so he, Mike Pence is incorrectly, um, is incorrectly concluding that if I stick to the conservative issues, I will be picked by the Republican base over Donald Trump. He's wrong. He's wrong. Now, in a different timeline where Trump and Pence didn't effectively break up, um, Pence would be one of the heir apparents to the Trump throne, and Trump would give him the blessing. But, you know, the way it, the way it ended is uh, Pence refused to basically attempt to overturn the election, which, of course, he didn't have the power to do, but he attempted he, – he didn't attempt to try to do it. And so you saw Trump was like, I don't want to be your friend anymore. It's a classic Trump, like, baby tantrum type stuff. Um, so – now they don't like each other anymore, or they're not close anymore. And Pence does not have Trump's blessing. And so Pence is going to get a rude awakening as to how much the Republican base, it's true, the, the primary voters on the Republican side, the numbers show they're in a cult of personality. And they love Trump more than anything. And it doesn't even matter, this is the thing, it doesn't even matter what political positions Trump espouses, they're going to support him. That's why, I mean, he had a big opportunity as president. He became president, he, there were times he said on the campaign, I'll give everybody health care. And the Republican base still voted for him. He was said he was against the wars. The Republican base still, still voted for him. He had an opportunity to actually do those things, align with factions of the left to get those things done. He didn't do it. Of course he didn't do it. He just acted like a standard establishment Republican. Um, but Mike Pence wrongly believes that the Republican base are ideological. And so they would pick him over a person like Trump because Pence is sufficiently to the right of Trump on paper. Not going to happen, man. The other portion of this is, Mike Pence is truly religious in this sense. He's the type to be like, God is calling me to do this, and I have to answer the call. God wants me to be president. He definitely thinks it's part of the plan, part of his rise. And so I think that also informs this. Man, it's going to be interesting to see. I don't know what's going to happen. Uh, I do know that if Trump wins, he's by far and away the favorite. But all the other guys, like, like, what's Ted Cruz going to do? He cuffed himself to Trump so thoroughly. Are you going to run against him again when you've so thoroughly cuffed yourself to the man and he'd obviously run roughshod over you? A lot of people hitch their wagon to Trump, and they still want that Trump popularity with the base, but they also want to be next in line. And so Trump is really a wrecking ball on that side. So in some ways, people should be rooting for him to stay in Republican politics because um, they're in an awkward position where it's tough for anybody other than a Trump-style Republican to win at any level, but also once they win the primaries, they have a tougher time in the generals. So, although I will say with Trump, there's an asterisk, because if he wins the primary, if he's up against somebody like Kamala, that's even money, dog. Trump could definitely win that. You never know. But Pence is about to have a rude awakening if indeed this reporting is true, if indeed he wants to run. Um, I don't think it would go well for him. So we just got the news the other day that um, Biden's team actually knows that there are some big issues that he's dealing with. 
So take a look at this from the Hill. President Biden's top aides have allegedly created a wall to avoid having him speak at unscripted events or sitting down for long interviews in an effort to prevent potential gaffes, a new book says. Peril, a new book by Bob Woodward and Washington Post reporter Robert Costa, claims that Biden's allies intentionally kept the president away from unscripted events or long interviews, according to a Fox News report. These aides included Chief of Staff Ron Klain and advisor Anita Dunn. They called the effect the wall, a cocooning of the president, the book says, describing the efforts to counter Biden's tendency to at times try, er, at times be testy or mangle statements, according to Fox News. They know that his brain is failing. They know he's not with it like he used to be with it. They know that age is getting to him. And so this is how they're reacting. They're reacting accordingly. But I find this absolutely astonishing for the, the simple reason that there was this coalescing at the last minute away from Bernie Sanders, who's still whip smart and with it. There was a coalescing at the last second away from Bernie. Mayor Pete and Amy Klobuchar dropped out and supported Biden in the primary, stabbed Bernie in the back and twisted that knife, and that's what led to Biden's victory. It was the coalescing of the establishment and the establishment media anointing Biden that made him president. But every step of the way, like we told you, everybody in the media knew it, all the other candidates knew it, and his staff knew it. His staff knew he wasn't all there anymore. And they would rather pick, hey, I'm not trying to use harsh language here. I'm just trying to be open and honest about it. They'd rather pick dementia over social democracy. That hurts. That really hurts. That says a lot about them, doesn't it? That says a lot about the commitment of the so-called moderate or centrist Democrats to the status quo, to the lobbyists, to corporations. That's what that shows. God, that's astonishing. That's astonishing. And then, by the way, notice something. The only time that this stuff starts coming out, oh, we don't know if he's all there. What? Right after he does something good. Right after he, like, ends the Afghanistan war, for example. That's when they were, oh, my God, he's got issues, this guy. He's not thinking properly. Well, hold on. When he was beating Bernie Sanders, you all pretended the opposite. You all pretended he's totally fine. When he was doing bad things, you're all like, he's great. Now he finally does something good. I don't know if he's all there mentally. It's a dirty game, man. Politics is a dirty game, but it really says something that his own people know what's going on. And, this, I mean, this isn't too dissimilar from Trump, right? Like, his own people knew he was crazy, but they were like, Shh. And that, final point is this. Even with Biden being, like, on the way out mentally, and even with Trump, it being in a similar boat, all of the like micromanagers and handlers and establishment gremlins around them, those people are so universally disliked that people would rather pick somebody on the way out mentally than the establishment goons around them. You know what I mean? Like Ronald Klain is not going to be more popular than Biden no matter what he does because these are people who have totally internalized the game of D.C., which is a disgusting game. So... We'll see. I bet they, they, they trot out this excuse every time Biden does something positive. And when he does something negative, nobody will say anything about his mental state. That's what I think is going to happen. Okay. Let's talk about Noam Chomsky. 
Noam Chomsky accurately predicted everything that was going to happen with Afghanistan. I mean, he really called it. As soon as the U.S. pulls out, you're going to have the implosion of uh, the Afghan military and the Afghan government, and he called all of it. So here he is. He's on, uh, let me, hold on, let me find the name of the show. Gulf News, I think the name of the show is, G-U-L-F News. I think that's the name of it. Gulf News, yeah. Um, He went on this show, and he explains how he knew that and gives us some really interesting quotes.
Actually, it's the United States which is creating the terrorist networks, not by funding them, but by its actions. What has happened? Let's go back to 2001. Al-Qaeda and bin Laden were in a tiny area at the border of the Afghan-Pakistan border, Afpak. That's where the seat of Islamic terrorism. Where is it now? All over the world. We've given bin Laden the greatest gift he could have imagined. 9-11 was the most successful action in military history. The United States reacted exactly the way he wanted, by showing our muscle, using force, spreading radical Islam all over the world. We accelerated it further when we invaded Iraq, created the Sunni resistance, ISIS, finally. Wow. We've given bin Laden the greatest gift in the world. That's what Noam Chomsky says. Yeah, it's hard to argue with what he's saying there. Also, what's interesting is the point on Afghanistan becoming a haven for terrorists. He effectively says there's no reason to believe that. In fact, I'll go a step further. Um, It almost certainly won't be a haven for terrorists because the Taliban and ISIS have been fighting for years now. We covered the story. I covered the story like five years ago where the Taliban was really messing up ISIS in Afghanistan. Uh, Taliban is a guerrilla army. They've had control of the region uh, for a long time. And ISIS are jihadists. That's not the same as a guerrilla army. They have global ambitions. The Taliban does not have global ambitions. They have national ambitions, if anything. And so there was a fight. Also, uh, ISIS is, I think, an even more hardline interpretation of Sharia than the Taliban does. So... There's been internal fighting for a while. This is not the same as it was in the early 2000s when al-Qaeda was basically protected by the Taliban under the tribal system, um, which led to originally the U.S. wanting to get bin Laden in Afghanistan because we thought he was in Afghanistan. He was being protected in Afghanistan. Um, This isn't the early 2000s anymore. Now different factions of, um, of Islamic radicals are fighting against each other. So there really is no reason to think that that's the case. In fact, in the airport bombing, there were Taliban operatives who were killed, too, by the ISIS bombs. And the Taliban was working with the U.S. to help get Americans out of Afghanistan. So I think, I think he's right. I think he's right. And we not only helped spread um, terrorism because of the backlash to what we were doing, we also did help fund it, whether it was in Syria or Yemen whether it was originally back in Afghanistan during uh, their war against the Soviet Union during the Cold War. I mean, one of our top allies is Saudi Arabia. We give them billions of dollars in weapons, and then they help arm and fund um, Islamists around the world and jihadists around the world. So I think he's right about that. Interesting point is when he says, we aren't burdened by intelligence reports, which is how I knew that, you know, this thing was going to fall apart. That when you're in the government and you're given the intelligence reports, they're just telling you, what they want to tell you. They're just painting the picture that they want to paint. And so they're telling the executive branch, oh, everything's good, everything's fine, you know. Uh, it, the Afghanistan government w- will hold. Well, as Chomsky points out, that government is just totally corrupt. It's a puppet government. It's, it's built on a foundation of sand. The entire army, half of the army was on paper. And of the ones that were real, probably 90% of them didn't have any fighting chops and weren't trained properly and all that stuff. It, it was fake. It was all fake. 
It was all fake. It was an imperialist project from the United States. Um, it had a lot to do, I'm sure, with natural resources, the trillions of dollars in mineral wealth, the opium in the case of Iraq. It had to do with oil. had to do with the profits of the military-industrial complex. had to do with the global chessboard, and we wanted to keep China and Russia at bay. These became the real reasons. It has nothing to do with human rights and decency and democracy and, and you know, altruism and protecting us from terrorists. No, we're arming terrorists. So, of course, it's not about protecting us from terrorists. So... He predicted it, man. He predicted it every single step of the way, which I guess you can say, in a sense, is classic Noam Chomsky. Okay. Let's have some fun, y'all. Let's have some fun. Ben Shapiro released one of these uh, YouTube short videos, shorts, and um, he's talking about sex. Get ready, ladies and gentlemen. He's going to give you a, a handy-dandy Ben Shapiro guide to what you should do with your sex life and your romantic life. The left destroyed traditional mores with regards to relations between the sexes. The original idea was that men were supposed to act with honor and chivalry in protecting women. Sexual activity was supposed to be confined to committed relationships, particularly marriage. When you don't teach men to protect women, you get men who will victimize women. And when you don't teach women that they ought to cherish men who are responsible and good, all you end up doing is incentivizing bad male behavior. The feminist movement was not wrong when they said men are acting like pigs. They were wrong when they said women also ought to act like pigs and that this is a solution to our problem. They create the standard where sex is basically a throwaway item, sort of like eating. We treat sex very differently when it comes to what we all know it is, which is a deeply important and intimate part of a person's life. Every scientific study ever done has shown that women actually do have better sex in the context of committed relationships. All the crap that you see in Cosmo magazine about sleeping with a hundred guys and being sexually happy is just garbage. It's just sheer unadulterated garbage. Where do you even begin? Where do you begin? What scientific studies is he talking about? Are scientists in the bedroom measuring people fucking? And how do you determine what's better sex and what's worse sex? Is it the loudness of the moans? Is it the, um, the audio volume of the cheek slapping? What are you talking about? Every scientific study has shown me. Oh, I turned him into Ted Cruz there. Sorry. I, I need to work on my Ben Shapiro, um, my, only my Ben Shapiro voice, because everything just devolves and becomes Ted Cruz. Um, so... Look, my main takeaway is very simple. Dude, who cares? Let people live however they want to live. Are, are there some people who are going to thrive under the model and the system that he just espoused? Sure, of course. There are plenty of people who thrive in a very traditional type, you know, relationship dynamic, whatever it may be. The man is the provider. The woman is the takes care of the kids and takes care of stuff at home. Um the man is the leader and the woman, you know, is maybe doesn't take as much of that role. The man, what does he say? Men should act with honor and chivalry to protect women and a woman should cherish a man who's responsible and good. I'm sure there are plenty of people who thrive under a, a dynamic like that. Um, but then there's also people who don't. There's also uh, plenty of relationships where you know, maybe the woman is more of the leader and more of the decision maker, and the man isn't. But the man's okay with that, and he likes that. And the woman's okay with her role, and she likes her role. You know, that's definitely a thing. 
there are some people who are single and they are genuinely happier when they're single and they don't need your finger wagging judgment, dude. They don't need you telling them how to live their lives. Because, you know, this sort of conflicts with other right-wing values of like, hey, nobody should make decisions for me. I'll make my own decisions. I'll pull myself up by my bootstraps. I'll be responsible to myself and my own code of ethics. The, the individualism ethos. Well, now all of a sudden when it comes to, you know, issues involving romance and sex and love, the individualism ethos gets thrown out the window. And it's, now let me tell you exactly how you have to do it and exactly what the rules are and exactly how you go through it. I mean, he says men are acting like pigs. The feminists were right about that, but feminists are wrong when they said women ought to also act like pigs. What does that mean? Are there some men who act like pigs? Yes. Do all of them? No. What's the percentage breakdown? I don't know because that hasn't been measured, and that's not a serious thing that anybody who follows this stuff empirically talks about. Uh, uh, Now, they say women ought to act like pigs. Really? Is that what feminists say, Ben, that women ought to act like pigs? That's what they say? I think you're saying that's what they say, and I think you're effectively strawmanning whatever it is their argument actually is. I don't think it's advisable to take advice from somebody on sex and love when everybody knows he can't get his wife wet. I don't want to say those words, dog. You think I want to bring that up? You think I want to talk about that? I don't want to talk about that. You put me in a position where I have to talk about it because you're giving people sex advice and love advice and relationship advice, and you very famously said, a wet pussy is a medical condition. Something's wrong if it's wet. Oh, my God, Ben. Oh, my God. You have never made anybody horny in human history. What the hell? (laughs) That's horrendous. And he's given advice. He's given advice. Look, dude, to each their own. Okay, here's a, a great way to think about it. You know how people are into different things sexually, you know? You have a a favorite position that's not the same as your best friend's favorite position, that's not the same as their cousin's favorite position, that's not the same as Rando walking down the street's favorite position. People are into different things. Why is it so hard to acknowledge that that's also what love is like? So there there are some people in polygamous, furry relationships, who are probably really happy. Now, is that for me? No. There are some people who are in other sorts of polygamous relationships who are happy. Now, is that for me? No. Again, no. But there are probably some people who are like that. I don't know what the percentage is. Is it as tiny as 1%? Maybe. I don't know. Is it 10%? I don't know. Maybe. But that exists. Also, the traditional dynamic exists with happy people and with unhappy people, and every dynamic in between exists with happy and unhappy people. Sometimes one person in the relationship is more dominant than the other. Sometimes it's an equal power dynamic. You know, sometimes it's the man taking the leadership role, sometimes it's the woman taking the leadership role. It's all about do you mesh, and are you happy, and is it sustainable? That's it. Now, he's got a list of boxes you have to check in order to get to that point. But you know what? Anybody who's being honest about the way love works is, there ain't no boxes to check, dog, when you know you know. If it's real, it's real. And you might check zero of the boxes that he's laying out for you as the standard you have to judge yourself by. But he's wrong. But he's wrong. Absolutely incorrect. And, you know, in the same way you can't judge people's favorite sex positions, I mean, you can, but you're just, it's all subjective. 
can't really judge the nature of people's relationships, man. You can't. Um, when you know, you know. And is it sustainable? And are you truly happy? That, those are, that's the guiding star. That's it. That's it. But he'd have you believe everything's got to be like a Leave it to Beaver 1950s style household. The man must act with honor and chivalry in protecting women and take a leadership role. The woman ought to cherish men who are responsible and good. And men need to not act like pigs. And women need to also not act like pigs, I guess. Well, I would, I would obviously take massive issue even with the idea that men are currently acting like pigs. And women are currently acting like pigs. pigs. It depends who you're talking about. And there obviously is no macro data on this stuff because how the fuck do you measure it? So just then just save the... Save the uh, love advice and romance advice and relationship advice. You're a political commentator, dude. Like, this is an issue where you can comment on it, but just know the stuff you know. Know your lane. Know your role. But the fact of the matter is that doesn't even make sense because he doesn't know economics either. He doesn't know politics either. He's, you know, massively biased and he's arguing back from his conclusion, which is like right-wing positions are good, period. So he's not even good at that, but you get what I'm saying. This is sort of out of his normal lane for a reason. Imagine being the type of person who wants to take love advice, relationship advice, sex advice from Ben Shapiro. That's not going to go well. Okay. Let me do a couple more for you. I got two more for y'all. Here we go. Marjorie Taylor Greene um, outdid herself yet again. She released one of the dumbest political ads I've ever seen. Nancy Pelosi is sneaking the Green New Deal into the $3.5 trillion budget. And in 2022, I'm going to blow away the Democrat socialist agenda. Unbelievable. I mean, that ad, it almost is disrespectful and stereotypical towards her own voters. Like, she thinks, well, obviously, this is what you idiots like, right? Yeehaw, I'm going to blow some stuff up. I got a gun. Y'all like guns? I like guns. I got guns. Yeah, guns. Woo! Trigger the libs. Hate the libs. I love the guns. Blowing stuff up. Yeehaw! Like, that's... It's, such, it's pandering nonsense, and it's pandering to this stereotype of, like, a hillbilly or a redneck Republican-based voter. God, it's terrible. So, uh, I mean, there's a lot of stuff to take away from that, but just the lies are, are too much. The Nancy Pelosi is sneaking the Green New Deal into the $3.5 trillion budget bill. That's totally made up. Totally made up. Complete BS. It, I mean, are they saying literally any climate provisions at all are the Green New Deal, no matter how mild, no matter how watered down, no matter how much they're half measures, oh, that's all the Green New Deal. I mean, maybe that is how they would argue that, that they would argue that that's what it means, but that's not true. It's not even close to true, but they don't even care. Like, I don't even know why I bother doing these segments and laying that out. She doesn't care. She's playing a role. She has her narrative. 
She says, I'm going to blow away the Democrats' socialist agenda. You don't have to blow it away. It doesn't exist. There is no democratic socialist agenda. You can barely call it social democracy. Now, I like the $3.5 trillion bill. It's got a lot of good stuff in there. But yeah, it's at best, it's social democratic. At best. Oh, we're going to blow away the Democrat socialist agenda. By the way, poll the country on those specific provisions in the bill. Everyone is popular. Even among Republicans, a lot of the provisions are popular, if not most of the provisions. I mean, you talk stuff like child care, universal pre-K, raising taxes on the rich. In some polls, more Republicans want to raise taxes on the rich than don't. What does she do? Sum it all up. Going to blow away the Democrat social agenda. Look, loud noises, big explosions, gun, gun. I got a gun. I got a gun. You idiots like guns, right? I got guns. It's pandering nonsense, man. Imagine building a political worldview, and it's all based on slogans. That's Marjorie Taylor Greene. She was created in a lab to be a, a, a stereotype of the low-information voter. I really think this is, even, this is even condescending to her own supporters, you know? Like what, you think that's, that's all you need to do in order to get the votes? Make a bunch of idiots clap like seals and go, Gun! I like gun! Gun good! I like gun! I like gun! I like explosion! Democrats bad! God damn it, that's the worst ad ever. I'll just say this. I don't agree with the idea because some people are going to say, oh, my God, this is encouraging violence. No, no. I mean, there are plenty of people who are far right who are borderline violent and hanging on by a thread right now anyway, but I don't think a Marjorie Taylor ad doing this is going to push them over the edge. Um, But I will say that if if you reverse the roles and there was some equal and opposite Democratic ad that had something like this, the right would be screaming bloody murder and saying, oh, my God, you're encouraging violence. So I don't think this really encourages violence. I just think it's stupid. I just think it's dumb. And I think she really shows her cards here in this sense. Ultimately, she's nothing but culture war grievance. That's it. And I I can't, I have to get this message through to people. If you're not focusing more on economics and foreign policy than on the culture war, you're just not doing politics seriously. You're not. You're falling for the diversions and going down the path of the diversions. And that's pathetic. And that's what she is. She's nothing but culture war grievance manifested into a politician. And so it's unserious, and it's dumb, and uh, it's tribal, it's partisan, it's nonsense. And expect to see a lot more Marjorie Taylor Greens in the future, because she's not going to be the only one. Okay. Final story all the day of the day, and it's an important one, very important one, if I don't say so myself. So we just got the news that um, health insurance companies are going to stop doing one of the very rare few things they did that was good. So take a look at this. The days of full COVID coverage are over. Insurers are restoring deductibles and copays, leaving patients with big bills. Now, there were already, I'm sure, loopholes and stuff because we've covered stories of gigantic COVID bills, but there was a while there where they said no copays, no deductibles for COVID stuff because it's a pandemic and, you know, people really can't afford this and they got clomped over the head with it out of nowhere and, like, what are we supposed to do? Now, we learned that the real reason, the real reason the health insurers did this is because 
they were terrified that the government was going to mandate them to do it for free. So they said, no, 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 you don't need to do that. We're going to do it voluntarily. Now, it was evil genius, that move. Why? Because now, you know, however long into the pandemic, they go, well, the pandemic really has no end in sight. So now we're going to start charging people. So if the government had mandated all the COVID stuff has to be free, that would have been in perpetuity. And it would have just had to be free. So they said, no, 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 don't mandate it. We'll do it on our own. But then now, they're, in the long run, they're actually going to make more money because they're saying, we're done with that. Now we're going to start charging you. So even when it looks like they're doing something good, there are nefarious motives, and it'll come back to bite you in the ass. That's exactly what's happening here. So let me give you some information on this. You might say, well, Kyle, be reasonable. They're struggling. That's why they got to charge now, because this, this pandemic hit them just as hard as it hit regular folks. So what are you going to do? You have a system. System works how it works. They need to be able to pay the bills. So that's why the health insurance companies have to start charging copays and deductibles now for COVID treatment. If you believe that, you could be forgiven for thinking that, but you're wrong. Because Anthem, for example, took $4.6 billion in profits in 2020, um, compared with $4.8 billion in 2019. And United Health Group, another example, reported $15.4 billion in profits in 2020, up from $13.8 billion in 2019. So they made even more money in the heart of the pandemic. $15.4 billion in 2020. Profits. That's profits. Oh, but they're crying. Oh, we have to charge the copays and deductibles. I'm sorry. We have no choice. Oh, you definitely have a choice. You're choosing to price gouge people and rip them off because that's what you do. That's your business model. So last year, according to the Kaiser Family Foundation, 88% of people covered by private insurance had their copays and deductibles for COVID treatment waived. So it was basically free for 88% of people. By August 2021, only 28% of the two largest plans in each state and the District of Columbia still had the waivers in place, and an additional 10% planned to phase them out by the end of October. Wow. Wow. Now, just to put in perspective for you, um, COVID hospitalizations under insurance contracts on average cost between $29,000 or $156,000. Between $29,000 and $156,000. So with the copays and the deductibles, how much are people going to be charged out of pocket? It depends on your individual plan. The lucky ones will be charged maybe two or three grand. Middle of the road is maybe five. The ones who are screwed are 10 plus. I mean, everybody's screwed, but 10 plus would be... A, bad example. So there you have it. By the way, we got a little taste of universal health care, of socialized medicine with this pandemic between health insurance companies originally saying, all right, no charge for anything involving uh, COVID. So there are some people who got treatment and just left and didn't pay anything. Sure, they would report that's a positive thing, assuming they survived COVID, of course. And we also got free vaccines for everybody. We could just go in and get the vaccine. Now, my experience getting the vaccine was lovely. I don't know how yours was. Mine was wonderful. I was never hospitalized with COVID, so I don't know what it would be like to get the treatment and then just leave and pay nothing. But talk to the people who did have that done. They'd probably like it. Um, so we got our little, our little trial run, our little taste of how amazing it could be with universal health care, and now they're ripping it all away. They're even supposed to 
Now, there's debate about whether or not boosters are necessary. Actually, the science now, the FDA just recommended it's not even really necessary. They might do it for very high-risk individuals, but nobody else. Uh, we're not sure yet that's going to unfold, but if there are boosters, they might start charging for that too. So we got a taste of the solution, and then we take the solution away. That's what happened. This is inexcusable. Every other developed country has one version or another of a universal health care system where you get sick, you get help, and that's it. You don't pay anything. In fact, in the UK, they'll give you money to pay for your parking, for example. So you net make money from a trip to the hospital. Go figure. Here, we waste all of our tax money on endless wars, trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars on endless wars, and giving money to the military-industrial complex, and bailing out Wall Street. But we don't have money for health care. We don't have money for education. Now, they're taking away the little sprinkles that we had, little sprinkles of the solution of universal health care. And by the way, nobody's going to talk about this. Watch. CNN won't cover it. MSNBC won't cover it. Fox News won't cover it. If they do, it'll be a passing mention. This is the sort of stuff that deserves hair on fire coverage because this is scandalous that they're taking away one of the few things that were good. Of course, you've got to come to new media like this to talk about it, and that doesn't make me happy. Doesn't make me happy that we're one of the few talking about the serious issues. I wish everybody would do it. All right. We are done, baby. Love y'all. Everybody have a great rest of your day. I will talk to you soon. I'm out. Peace.